You're listening to the South Dakota Bankers Association podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This week, Rick Monheim, an IT analyst with Security First Bank out of Rapid City, South Dakota, is joined by John Waldman, co-founder of SBS Cybersecurity, headquartered in Madison, South Dakota. John and Rick are going to talk about the importance of and the impact cybersecurity has in the world of financial institutions. As you're probably aware, October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, fitting with scary and ghoulish activity happening on the daily. But Rick and John talk Cyber 101 and how implementing some simple steps can help protect you, your information, and your identity against bad actors. Welcome to the South Dakota Bankers Association podcast for October 2022, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I'm Rick Monheim, an IT analyst with Security First Bank located in Rapid City, and I have John Waldman, a co-founder of SBS Cybersecurity, with me here today. John, I had the pleasure of meeting you and listening to your presentation on cybersecurity at the SDBA Technology Conference last year and this year. I want to thank you for taking the time to have this little wrap session on cybersecurity today. Well, thanks, Rick, and thanks for having me on the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Can you give us a little bit about your background with cybersecurity? You bet. Well, we started SBS all the way back in 2004, while my partner, Chad Knutson, and I were going to school at Dakota State University in Madison, South Dakota, for our Master's of Information Assurance degree, which was one of the first in the country. And around that time is when IT exams started changing specifically for banks. And the world was was very different back then. In fact, we didn't even use the term cybersecurity. It was information assurance or information security. And what we started to do while we were going to school is we started doing IT risk assessments and policy work, information security program work for banks. And there became a really big need for helping financial institutions really understand what was going on from uh, an information security risk perspective. So back then we did a lot of IT risk assessments and then we determined that we could take the work that we were doing and turn it into a useful tool for helping other banks make better decisions about what to do next when it came to risk management. So we've, from there, grown and evolved over the years from a group of college kids trying to figure out how to help banks understand technology risk into a full-blown cybersecurity firm that helps clients in nearly every industry today, though we still work mostly with banks and in nearly every state. Still waiting for somebody in, in Ohio to do business with, but you know, our ultimate objective is really to help our clients make more informed cybersecurity risk management decisions. We've got uh, about 80 folks in 16 different states, most of whom are experts in some form of technology, whether it's uh, network security, auditing, consulting, software development, you name it, we've a handful of folks that can help. That's awesome. Well, again, it's a pleasure to have you here today. It seems appropriate that October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month as it gets scarier and scarier out there every year in this in the metaverse. Maybe we can just kick this off kind of by you telling us a little bit about what CISA or the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is doing for Cybersecurity Awareness Month. 
Absolutely. Well, interestingly enough, Cybersecurity Awareness Month started all the way back in 2004 when President, at the time, George W. Bush, determined October would be Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So obviously the CISA was not around back then, and a lot of things weren't around back then when it came to cybersecurity. So it's grown and evolved over the years. And around about the 2010 timeframe, the National Cybersecurity Alliance began to promote the idea of themes, and they started launching events around the country to, to really promote cybersecurity awareness. National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, as it, it's known now, really picked up a lot of traction over the last few years with a lot of different organizations promoting cybersecurity awareness, SBS Cybersecurity being uh, an NCSAM champion, I think that's what they call them, and really digging into these monthly and weekly themes that really anybody can relate to, whether you're a business or you're an individual. So this month's theme is See Yourself in Cyber. And the idea is that cybersecurity is really all about people, which is something that we talk about a lot. I mean, that cybersecurity is very fundamentally a, a human thing, whether it's a human creating the, the technology, the hardware that we use, a human configuring it, to a human monitoring it, a human using it. And so it's it's a really appropriate and, and timely theme from that perspective. So that See Yourself in Cyber this year for National Cybersecurity Awareness Month has really three major overlying themes, which is see yourself taking action to stay safe online, see yourself joining the cyber workforce, and see yourself as part of the solution. So a lot of really good messages from uh, the National Cybersecurity Alliance and the NCSAM. Yeah, every one of those is uh, is super important. And I don't, I don't know if institutions really put enough focus on you know that type of security and getting the buy-in from their institutional users or whatnot like you mentioned it's it's also just important in everybody's everyday life it's huge it's happening everywhere not just in like the the business sector absolutely yeah so i know through our audits our state and federal auditors have really been focusing on you know a few topics that they really focus on and lately those have been multi-factor authentication strong passwords recognizing and reporting phishing updating all of your software and ransomware attacks maybe we can start this section by talking a little bit about multi-factor authentication uh, is that a good control for every institution to implement and what should we be considering when actually implementing it great place to start so uh, on the macro, absolutely, it's a great control to be implementing. We at SVS refer to multi-factor authentication as the hand sanitizer of account takeover. And according to Microsoft, it kills about 99.9% .9 of bacteria, I, I mean, account takeover. So uh, just that in and of itself, when deployed properly, makes it a tremendous control, preventative control, not just for account takeover and phishing, but also for data breaches and ransomware. So when used properly, multi-factor authentication is a really strong level of additional authentication that makes it incredibly difficult for a hacker to take over an online account, whether that's your email account, personal or corporate, or online banking. Uh, again, the same, you know, most organizations have their online banking accounts and we as individuals all have our 
our online banking accounts and as well as email. And those are, are two of the most important tools that we use. One manages our money and the other manages our communications. And sometimes they can do both, right? So the good news is multi-factor authentication can be mostly convenient when you pair it with an authenticator app that just requires you to use your fingerprint. So as an example, your email account, if you're using Microsoft 365, Office, Office 365, you turn on multi-factor authentication and set it up with Microsoft Authenticator. When you go to log in and that MFA token pops up, all you got to do is, you know, put your thumb on your phone and you're in. There's other ways to do it as well, like SMS, which is your text message codes. You can get a code emailed to you. You can get a phone call with a code that you put in. Yeah, these are all what we call out-of-band methods of verification, meaning you're not authenticating in the same manner in which you're logging in, right? So it's different than how you're putting in your username and password. The authenticator app component is considered the most secure when deployed properly because bad guys can intercept text messages. They can intercept emails, you know, those things. It's, it's near impossible to intercept an authenticator app token. But the flip side to that is there are always ways to defeat multi-factor authentication. And if you're using an authenticator app, sometimes hackers, if they have your credentials in the first place, try to log in and, and cross their fingers and hope that you authenticate to that authenticator without paying attention. So a good takeaway there is while the authenticator app is considered the most secure method of multi-factor authentication, can, you know, coincidentally, it's also the easiest. There's also some risk there in training your users to make sure that you're actively logging in and paying attention to those authenticator app requests and not just blindly accepting or, you know, thumbprinting in when you have one pop up on your phone. From a business standpoint, though, we at SBS and, and basically everybody else in the cybersecurity community recommend turning on multi-factor authentication for any internet-facing website and application. If multi-factor is, is an option, we recommend that you turn it on. That goes for personal as well, not just from a business perspective. From a business perspective, a lot of organizations are required to have multi-factor authentication enabled online banking and the financial industry, while it is not a strict requirement, you know, banks are required to at least risk assess multi-factor authentication for their online banking channels and turn it on where appropriate. On the flip side of that, cyber insurance requires multi-factor authentication for all administrative accounts. If you really want to have quality cyber insurance today, you're going to have to turn that on, which is a little bit more of a challenge than email, MFA, in some cases, because you have to do it locally on your network. But we also then recommend that businesses turn on multi-factor authentication for your customers and your users wherever possible as well. It may just be the thing that prevents a hacker from accessing all of your businesses or your financial institutions and your customers' information and money. Yeah. And, you know, that's, <laughs> that's huge. Uh, personally, I would put multi-factor authentication on everything just for my own personal use, because I want to make sure that I know who's logging into it and that it's me and not somebody else. But my parents, on the other hand, not so much. They understand the, 
you know, the, the security behind it and the reasoning behind it, but getting that sell to them that, yeah, you just have to open up another app or something and, and acknowledge it is seems like it's painful to get them to, you know, want to do that. And I know it's not just them. There's younger people that kind of feel the same, the same way. How do we get people to kind of buy into it and adopt it? Unfortunately, most of the time it starts with actually having to deal with the aftermath of an, an account takeover, whether it's identity theft or email compromise, you know, then folks start to realize that, hey, it's not that much of an inconvenience. So there's probably really two gaps, a gap of understanding and a gap of convenience. And with a proper training and education, you know, sometimes that training and education comes in the form of, you know, you experience something that you don't want to experience. So you turn it on and then you don't have to deal with it again. The other, the flip side to that is good storytelling and, and helping folks understand why it's important. And if you, you know, what happens if you don't, in, in and, our and experience and in our opinion, you know, we've worked a lot of digital forensics, incident response cases, ransomware, business email compromise. And proper use of multi-factor authentication would have prevented every single incident that we've worked with. Everyone. Yeah. And I think that you bring up a great point there. And I think sometimes, at least with IT departments that I've interacted with, sometimes it's easier for them to just to put the information out there and go through these phishing and, and multi-factor authentication tests for their users, but not actually telling them hey, here's, here's some real life examples of what happens if you don't do this stuff. So right. um, I think that's that's very important, that storytelling portion Absolutely. of it. You know, and, um, and one thing that we talk about a lot is financial institutions training and educating their customers as well, because, it, you know, that trickles down to your customers. If they get the experience account takeover, somebody accesses their online banking funds and steals their money, who pays for it? The bank does, yeah. right? It's it's a little bit different with a business, but there's risk mitigation in the fact that you have the ability to train and educate your folks on cybersecurity things as well. Your customers, financial institution customers, often look to their financial institution as a pillar of cybersecurity because you have to be, you're regulated as such. So sharing that information with your folks, having those conversations, having some town hall meetings or doing some webinars or lunch and learns and bringing in folks to share their experiences, whether it's identity theft or business email compromise or ransomware and, and what they would have done differently to prevent that from happening is priceless in terms of the training and educating aspect of cybersecurity. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, going back to like the business side of it, definitely the safest you know, way to do it would be have all logins internally and externally locked down with MFA. But is that really realistic or should institutions be focusing mainly on MFA for all VPN and remote users first and then later look at internal MFA? It probably depends a little bit on how mature your organization is and what kind of technology you deploy. For example, you know, we here at SBS are a, a cloud organization, right? We are fully Microsoft 365, Azure AD. So everything that we do to log into our computers, 
to, to access our email, to access all of our files. It's all MFA protected. That said, I realize that most organizations are not in that type of environment. So it's a little bit more of a risk management opportunity, right? What are your low-hanging fruit? Much like you said, right? Let's put multi-factor authentication on our known potential entry points, whether that's email, whether that's VPN, whether that's RDP, whether that's uh, external apps like online banking, you know, what are those things that we know we can we can deploy without really having to make a lot of additional investment at this juncture? And then like you alluded to, Rick, then evaluate how you deploy multi-factor authentication on everything else. And in some cases, it might make sense to look at what the next generation of technology is and plan for that. In some cases, it might be using a, a hardware token, like a YubiKey or you know something like that. Most organizations that we know that have deployed MFA for user logins to Active Directory use do what Microsoft Duo and a, a hardware token, but you know they have app capability. So again, once you have that framework in place and your folks are comfortable with logging into your computer into Active Directory and then just you know popping your fingerprint on your phone becomes just like everything else. Right. And, you know, and that's really the big thing is that once people start doing it and it just becomes second nature, it's not a problem anymore. It's just getting over that first initial hump, I think, most of the time. Yeah, we all hated eight character passwords back when we started talking about that 13 years <laughs> ago. That might you know. be a good segue into our next topic. But, <laughs> uh, you know, now we're talking yeah. about something else. But people yeah. got used that... to eight character passwords. Might have might have yeah. taken 12 years, but... <laughs> Right. It's still a battle. But yeah, that's the perfect segue into the, um, you know, my next question, I guess, is uh, strong passwords. Um, we hear a ton about that in recent years. Um, in fact, like our institution, some of our software, it already takes 15 character passwords as a minimum now. That's a huge touchy subject with any of our users. And it's been, we've been using it for over three years and I still get yelled at every time they lock themselves out or have to change that password because they have to come up with a whole nother one. How do you get people to buy into that and use um, longer pass phrases rather than just their name with a one behind it? <laughs> Great question. Really, we in the, the world of cybersecurity certainly recognize that passwords are the bane of our human existence, right? We have such a hard time with passwords but the good news is that there are a number of different options. Now, first and foremost, you mentioned passphrases. I enjoy creating passphrases. I don't necessarily remember, you know, like enjoy trying to remember all of my passphrases. So there's a different solution to that uh, when, when we get there, perhaps the, another segue. But passphrases can be a different way of thinking about passwords. So it's not, you know, fall 2022 exclamation point. It's, you know, what's the, what's a, a line from your favorite song or a favorite movie quote or a book or, you know, a make and model and year of car or, you know, my wife's a florist. So, you know, what's a Latin name for a flower? You know, I mean, there's a lot of different things. I always tell folks, you know, use something that is interesting to you that can be memorable, but th that's also 
longer. It can be longer than 15 words. You, you will run into on occasion, it's fewer and farther between now, apps and, and software that won't accept a long password anymore. But that's how I usually, I, I type sentences as passwords, you know, five to eight word sentences from an author that I like. And it's a memorable quote. I use it kind of as a reminder to myself, you know, hey, here's kind of a theme for the next 90 days of things that I want to remember. But uh, things to remember about passwords is number one, longer is better, right? The longer the password, the harder it becomes to crack and even more so than a shorter eight character complex password. So length equals entropy. And it's not a hacker trying to get access to your system and then brute force their way in and guess your password. Most of the time when somebody's compromised an account, they they take the password hashes offline and crack them with a GPU cracking uh, computer rig or a cloud resource that is designed to have a ton of resources and throw a ton of uh, processing power at cracking these passwords. So that's important to note. Longer is better. The number two rule is, and this is probably the hardest to correlate back with number one, is don't reuse your passwords. And again, this will be a good segue into what we're talking about next. But the data is staggering. The statistics are staggering. It's estimated that nearly 50 billion, with a B, billion accounts have been compromised online. Not just in the last year, but, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, the top 10 known data breaches account for 20 billion of those accounts compromised. And most of those were in the last five years. So if you think about it this way, everybody has had their information compromised at some point, probably more than once. And if you happen to reuse a password that's been compromised, bad guys now have access to everything that you use that same username and password for. And again, it's not a, a hacker going around and attempting to log into a hundred different websites with your unique username and password manually. They have software to do that for them. So they dump in a list of a hundred thousand usernames and passwords and go try to log into 10,000 different websites and it takes them an hour. So, it, you know, removing some of that, well, you know, who wants to access my email account? I don't have that much money in my online banking account. You know, who wants to see what I post on social media? We're telling ourselves the wrong story. The story is that that is really valuable to a hacker. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you have, or how much of that thing that you have, they want access to it. So, you know, all of that can be a pretty scary thought. It's even scarier for a business as opposed to just an individual. Because again, as we mentioned earlier, a business doesn't have the same legal cybersecurity and fraud protection as a consumer. So all of that is then on the business and it's on the business if their email gets compromised and that leads to a data breach and that often leads to ransomware, you know, you're going to rely on your legal help and your cyber insurance to have your back and then you got to explain it to your customers. So it can be a pretty slippery slope. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> I tell you, I'm with you though. I enjoy making those um, long passwords uh, or for like past phrases just because that's about the only creativity I get to do as a IT analyst. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, uh, that said, it's still a problem, right? Especially when the average online user has, I think, 90 to 100 unique websites 
and, and softwares and applications that they're logging into. I mean, that's a lot that you, you can't remember five yeah. passphrases, much less 90. Yeah. So would you recommend using software such as KeePass or some other password storing application uh, rather than, you know, having people write down their passwords on a sticky note and sticking it on their laptop, which I run into all the time? <laughs> Absolutely. From our perspective, we've been talking about this for, for quite some time. Password managers are a wonderful risk mitigation tool. On the onset, password managers can be pretty scary and intimidating, but they're also an extremely useful tool, both from a convenience and a good cybersecurity perspective. Now you might say, what are you talking about, John? You know, most of those password managers are online. They're in the cloud, man. You know, we don't know about the cloud, but the great thing about password managers from that perspective is the overall macro risk that it'll, it'll mitigate. So you only have to remember one password. Everything else is stored in a super encrypted password vault. To my knowledge, while there have been password managers, like the companies that run password managers have been hacked before, I don't know of any password vault, at least not from a reputable password manager company or application, has successfully been compromised. And I promise you that that is target number one for most hacker groups, right? If you can access Dashlane or LastPass or 1Password or, you know, insert other password manager here's password vault and get access to probably billions of passwords, you would own the internet. So password managers know that. And I wouldn't tell anybody to take my word for it a lot of what we tell folks is, hey, go do some homework, right? Read some reviews on these password managers. Watch some YouTube videos. Dig into their security if it's a concern for you. They're mostly transparent about the security features and functionalities that they offer. So overall macro perspective there is, again, you can have one password and then you don't have to remember the other passwords. I'm a big fan of LastPass. I started using LastPass uh, in the early 2010s, probably 2010, 2012, before we adopted it as a company here at SBS. We love it. There's a lot of great functionality and great tools, including, you know, you if you're using a cloud-based password manager, you have it on all of your devices. So you don't have to remember any of those passwords. They can all be 30 characters and complex, and it doesn't matter because all you need to do is log in. If you're doing it on your phone with your fingerprint, you know, you might have to put in your master password every now and again to re-authenticate, but everything else is handled by the password manager. You can change your passwords. It can change your passwords for you automatically. It can mitigate a ton of risk. And so we always talk about it from a, uh, does a password manager introduce some additional risk to your organization or you personally? Yes, it does. It's an additional online tool and there's inherent risk with doing that. But by and large, most of these tools are very secure. Again, do your homework. Uh, and the risk that it'll mitigate so that you don't have to either reuse passwords or try to have 90 different passphrases that are unique in every instance that you have to remember, you know, the risk that it mitigates from that perspective is quite tremendous. So I guess really a handful of other things to keep in mind here. We talk about number one, 
we strongly urge folks not to use the password manager in your browser. It is better to use it than, you know, to reuse passwords, but they're they're inherently much less secure. If somebody compromises your workstation, your browser is probably compromised too, and therefore all your passwords are compromised. There's man in the browser attacks that can work their way around it. So we strongly urge folks to use a separate app, not the password manager in your browser. Number two is, again, don't just believe me or, you know, don't just go use the most popular one. Do a little bit of homework, uh, understand how they protect your passwords and, you know, all of that good stuff. And number three, as we mentioned before, password managers are huge targets. So, you know, they have to, by the nature of what they do, have really excellent security in place. Again, it doesn't mean they're automatically safe and secure or a silver bullet for anything. That's why you should do your homework. But again, on the macro, password managers reduce, you know, a hundred times the risk that they introduce to you personally or as a business. And I'm assuming that, you know, most of them are all multi-factor authentication to get in there anyway. So that's, that's yeah. huge. And, um, and most of them don't necessarily require MFA out of the gate. So it's probably something that you have to turn on, but I would absolutely turn on multi-factor authentication if you're using a password manager. It'll be right up there with your online banking account and your email as the most important tools you have personally or as, as an organization. Yep. And I love that, that you put it in there, that it's super critical that everybody does their own due diligence on you know the different security things that they're going to implement. So yeah, that's huge. Well, we can move on to, you know, our next topic would be phishing really seems like organizations are receiving, or at least our organization is um, receiving more and more phishing and spam emails every day than we ever have before. Do you have any of your favorite tips or tricks uh, to avoid these um, and avoiding an incident? Great question. And you're hundred percent right. The reason that phishing is such a big threat is because bar none, it's the easiest way for a hacker to steal passwords or take over your computers or networks. It's cheap, everyone has email, and we're humans. So we're curious and fearful a lot of the times of the email that we receive, and we tend to click on stuff. So it becomes this perfect hacker storm that uh, until the entire email ecosystem gets better at identifying phishing emails, and it's better. It's better today than it ever has been before, but we still get a ton of phishing emails. So it, it kind of is that perfect hacker storm, if you will. So our favorite tip, maybe our best tip, is based on the golden rule, which is treat others how you would like to be treated, but with a cybersecurity you know, email twist, which is treat all email as if it was a phishing email on the get, right? So we call that the golden rule of email. Overall, the big idea there is to verify trust. We've talked for a long, long time in the world of technology, but verify, but we've changed it around. We flipped it a bit to say, verify, then trust, right? That plays into some of the big macro zero trust concepts that are going on in the world of networking and, and cybersecurity today. But back to the golden rule of email, if you take a more suspicious approach to your email, Naturally, people are trusting. We we want to read stuff, you know. We find interesting, and and we're very susceptible to um, suggestion, you know, 
uh, via email, like they'll boggles my mind sometimes that people, you know, will get some words electronically on their screen and go take drastic financial action without verifying, without asking questions because of who an email appears to come from. It's really easy to spoof email. It's really easy to, to send phishing emails. It's really easy to go buy uh, a ransomware toolkit or a malware toolkit online if you have any sort of idea uh, of what you're doing. So it doesn't take a professional hacker today to send out phishing emails. All you need is to know how to send an email, to know how to download a file off the internet, and to know how to attach that file to an email. So uh, to, to put it really in other ways, we, we really should not trust email, period. What we should do is when we receive an email and we find ourselves curious or fearful or being pushed to a sense of urgency, we should, or just receiving email in general, we should at least stop and ask ourselves questions until we're 100,000% sure we know where it would come from. The easiest way to do that is to follow up with whoever sent you the email in the first place to be sure it's legitimate. But you don't want to just reply to an email because you'll, you know, if, if it's a phishing email, you're, you're emailing a hacker. What do you think they're going to say? Nah, sorry, you caught me. You know, this was a, a legitimate phishing attempt, but you, sir or ma'am, uh, have outsmarted me. So have a good day. They're going to say, oh, yes, this is perfectly legitimate. And by the way, expect more. So call, text, stop by somebody's office, send them a smoke signal, you know, actually interact with a human being before you take an action on an email. Just again, just don't reply to the email. Stop, verify, then trust. Uh, alternatively, the other thing that you could do if it didn't come from somebody that you know is do a little Google research to see if it's a legitimate thing or if it's a scam. Or if it's a, you know, one of the, the UPS or Amazon or IRS type emails, right? Go log into the website yourself without clicking on a link. We can do that. We know the URLs, right? So we don't have to click stuff on an email. We just typically do it out of convenience or curiosity or, or fear in some cases. Oh, shoot, my Amazon package isn't getting delivered. Uh, that's really important to me. I, I'm expecting it today. I need it today. Even though a bad guy doesn't necessarily know that you do. Uh, might just so happen to coincide. So we click on stuff because we're in a hurry or you know, we're afraid of whatever happens. But alternatively, just open up Amazon on your phone or in your browser and go to your orders and see if it's really canceled or delayed or, or whatever the case is. That's really the, I guess, the big macro picture is phishing relies primarily on curiosity and fear to achieve the desired outcome the hacker's looking for, which is to steal your information and your money. So if you don't panic, or if you don't get click happy, or if you don't act out of urgency, you'll find that most of the time, nothing is quite so urgent or important that you have to click that link or send that money or download that, that attachment right this very second that you can reach out to somebody, you can go to a website, you can open an app and you can 95% of the time find out the information that you need to verify before you trust. Yeah. And that, that goes back to the whole diligence thing. Make sure that you know where these things are coming from. That's, that's important. We try to, we try to stress that to all of our employees, 
But uh, unfortunately, a lot of times it goes back to um, what we kind of talked about earlier, where until something bad happens, until you've clicked on one of them and, you know, some negative consequences happen, it's hard to get people to buy in. And so like we, our institution, we kind of like test our users and have random, you know, phishing tests. I think that's important to do, but I love what you stated earlier with the, and this I'll be telling my users, this is to just suspect that every email is bad and do your due diligence in looking at it. Do you know, definitely not the other way around where you're pretending that every one of them is good. And then just looking for bad ones. So I appreciate that takeaway that I'm going to have from this conversation. Um, yeah, kind we of as a, a little poster about it on our website, if you guys want to go check it out. Perfect. I'll definitely do that. Um, as kind of a follow-up here, uh, this is just something that kind of occurred to me the other day is that we talk a lot about, you know, telling people don't click on them and how to kind of avoid a phishing email and, and to basically do your due diligence before you click on things. But are there any things that you would recommend instantaneously that people do if they do click on like a phishing email so i know i've had a lot of users say well i got this email i clicked on it i clicked the link um realized that that's taking me to someplace that i didn't want to be and then they call me which is great that should be the first thing you do is is call your it department but are there any things like changing their own password that you would recommend them doing in these kind of scenarios That's a great question, Rick. Usually, usually, simply going to a website is not necessarily going to cause a ton of issues, especially if you have good host-based intrusion prevention or or anti-malware on the, you know, a corporate device. If you go to a website and you enter a username and password, yes, absolutely change your password immediately. So, you know, you also have to think about what we see in a lot of business email compromise situations is somebody gets a a user gets a phishing email, they go to a website, and they enter their username and password, and something gets downloaded, or they open an attachment, maybe a fake DocuSign file uh, that they have to enter a username and password to access or, or whatnot. And then a hacker gets access to their workstation. There's also, in a lot of cases, cached IT passwords, administrative passwords on that workstation as well. So it's probably not just important if somebody is entering credentials or downloading something to change the user's passwords, but probably most of the admin passwords as well. Yeah, that's great to know because not a lot of people talk about that portion of it as of like, Hey, if that happens, like these are some critical things that you should do right away. And I know that helps us out and it's going to help a lot of our listeners out as well. Yeah. The other thing that we see a lot there too, is multi-factor authentication playing a huge role there. And in a lot of cases, especially if you go change a password or if your users are trained enough not to just, you know, hit okay on the multi-factor authentication request, we'll start to see attempted logons from foreign countries or, you know, outside of the normal geographical region where you would normally associate a login for and denying those MFA requests and shutting access off. Now that's another really good thing that I didn't think to mention earlier is if you block most traffic to foreign countries, 
you're going to mitigate a lot of risk from that perspective too, because for the most part, hackers are foreign rather than domestic. Doesn't mean they always always are. Sometimes they're using VPNs to make it appear that they're in the United States. So it's not gonna it's not a silver bullet, but just blocking traffic to your email clients, to your online banking accounts uh, or or systems, you know, to your VPNs or RDPs is going to mitigate an additional level of risk there as well. Excellent. That's excellent advice. Well, we can move on to our next subject here, and that would be every tech center's nightmare, software updates. Uh, we use so many different pieces of software and different products, and of course, Microsoft. Which do we patch? How do we do it? And when, you know, when do we do it? When's a good time to do that? Well, the best answers I got for you there are everything in ASAP. Now, that's that's not always, you know, the the going to be the case, especially if we're talking about a business. But if we are talking from a business perspective, whether you're a financial institution or otherwise, centralizing patch management with a software program or an application is not only the safest and best method to catch everything. It's also the most efficient. A lot of organizations leverage a managed service provider to help patch their stuff from a centralized perspective. But either way, centralizing patch management takes the responsibility away from the user and or an IT person to go around and manually patch everything. And uh, trust me, I know that you know you from the IT world don't want to go around and manually update software for every one of your users nor do you want to trust that your users are going to have to do that for themselves. So centralizing that, pushing those updates out, reminding folks, I mean, it happens here at SPS too, you know, our ISO jumps on our all company meeting on every Friday and talks about everybody needs to restart your computer, right? If you haven't yet this week, there is some interaction required from a user, which is typically just going to be restart your computer, but you know, it's also important to note, we're not just patching Microsoft operating systems, we're also patching third-party stuff. Anything that's downloaded on your workstation or device probably has a software update at some juncture. Uh, firewalls have firmware updates, routers, switches, printers, you know, so it's all of the stuff. And some of it can be configured to auto-update. A lot of it is going to be more of a manual update. And there's going to have to be an interaction from an IT person or a user at some juncture. So the more you can centralize, the better if it's going to be. If you're looking at it personally, the, the best answers that we mentioned before are the same. Patch all your stuff, patch it as soon as you can, keep an eye on it. Um, because you know I, we'll go speak for, for clients to their customers as well. And we'll still talk about Windows XP. And inevitably at one of these sessions, you know, there's some individual in the crowd that it stands up and is like, I still run Windows XP. And, you know, I go find that guy afterwards and say, hey, uh, you know, there are automatic exploits for Windows XP that if you plug a Windows XP box into the internet, not behind a firewall, not behind anything, it is compromised in less than 60 seconds. The internet knows and you know, Russian hackers are looking for that stuff. So you'll have a Russian best friend in your computer, in your Windows XP box, in less than 60 seconds if uh, if you're you're not careful. So please, please upgrade. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty imperative that that's for sure. And you know, it's, uh, it's hard to get, you know, I get it's time consuming and it's tough to upgrade everything um, all the time when, you know, they come out with new versions of windows, um, but you have plenty of time to upgrade those before they go end of life. So I would like to stress that too, that, that it's, it's pretty imperative that people stay with the latest operating systems and not let them get so far out of date where, you know, it's going to be even more of a pain to get those, you know, Microsoft and all the rest of the software on it updated. Absolutely. Other thing to keep in mind is you don't have to patch everything all at the same time and or all at once. Patch the most important stuff first. We recommend creating a schedule, you know, kind of identifying what you're going to patch and what frequency, you know, what requires more urgency. You know, if there's a fix for a Windows zero-day vulnerability or an Exchange zero-day vulnerability, which we've seen three or four of those just in 2022 here alone, those are going to require more urgency, you know, versus other things. So have a schedule, have a, a prioritization list. We also talk about testing stuff, especially as a business. Uh, before you just roll stuff out, have some sort of test environment, even if it's just rolling it out to a handful of computers first and making sure stuff doesn't break because nobody the blue screen of death and no IT person wants to spend half of their weekend rebuilding a network. So th that's important stuff to, to note as well. Great tips. I appreciate that. Uh, we can move on to the next uh, crazy topic, which um, I know has been brought up in every state and federal audit in the last two years that I've been on. Um, that's ransomware attacks. How do we protect ourselves from this? Do you have any insight to share with how to mitigate the impact or exposure to these types of attacks? Absolutely. Ransomware is bad stuff, man. We work ransomware cases from a DFI. Not only are they uh, terrible for business, on average, if you if an, an organization suffers a ransomware attack, they are shut down, not operational for 24 days, which is greater than three weeks. And that is a long time to not be doing business. So from our perspective, what we talk about is the absolute best approach to ransomware is to make sure that you've got good controls in place to prevent ransomware. That said, we can't prevent all of the bad things, right? We talk about cybersecurity being very human. You can have the best controls in the world and you may still have a user click on something, or you may still have a human that configured something improperly and somebody's in your network and then they launch ransomware. But it is important to note that the majority of ransomware today occurs after a network compromise has taken place. So that means that a hacker is in your network. They've found all of the things that they want to find. They've elevated their privileges. They've exfiltrated their data. And then they're launching ransomware on their way out. So meaning most of the time, it's not down, somebody downloading a file out of an email. And then all of a sudden you get the ransomware pop-ups like it like used to, you know, we used to have happen five years ago. It's hackers are in your network. They're launching ransomware from the inside. And then they, you know, they're heading out. So doing everything that you can to keep a hacker out of your network in the first place is really important. Having next generation firewalls, having strong intrusion detection and intrusion prevention systems, uh, having good host-based intrusion prevention systems like next gen antivirus or anti-malware that looks for the behavior of files and programs operating in your network, not just 
you know, whether or not you know something is bad based on a, a signature, which changes all the time. Having good, strong email security practices are controls that most organizations implement to prevent network compromise. And those are just to name a few. There's probably a ton of others. We talked about foreign IP blocking a little bit earlier as an example. Just as important as trying to prevent an attack from occurring is to be able to detect when abnormal activity is occurring inside your network. Products like a, a SIM, a security information and event management system that correlates the millions of logs that you get on the inside of your network to flag stuff that you're really concerned about. We call those indicators of compromise, right? New administrative accounts are created. 13 user accounts just got locked out without, you know, on a Sunday, right? You know, there's a lot of different things that can indicate that there is somebody doing something on the inside of your network that you really don't want them to do. That's where preventing uh, or detecting, you know, a network compromise really comes into place. The other thing to keep in mind, being able to understand that activity is going to lead to you catching somebody inside your network before they deploy ransomware. And that's the ultimate goal. Having a strong backup process in place is one of the smartest things that anybody, business or, or individual can do. Backup is cheap. There is really no excuse today comparatively for what it costs to recover your network in the event of an incident. There's really no good excuse for not having good backups today. Storage is cheap. Backup processes are cheap. That doesn't mean that it doesn't require some human capital and in, in investment, but you know, you can you can do an online backup from a personal perspective for less than 30 bucks a year, you know, with a terabyte of storage. That's insane. From a business perspective, you know, there's a lot of different tools and a lot of different processes out there. But overall, we recommend following the 321 data backup process. You might refer to it as 3211, or there's a handful of kind of different evolutions of it. But the fundamental idea is you always have three copies of your data, your production data, the data that you use on a day-to-day -day basis, and two different backups. With those two different backups, you have two separate types of media. You know, for example, one cloud-based backup and maybe one local backup. And then always keep one copy of your backup offline. And that's where the other one comes into place. We'll also say and air gap. So it's not always connected, um, you know, from that perspective. So having a good offline copy, holistic copy of your data uh, is, is really important. That is the thing that in, in every ransomware case that we've worked has been the make or break once ransomware is deployed is, you know, when is your most recent offline accessible, you know, kind of full organizational backup. And if it's a long time, we worked with a company that their most recent offline backup was nine months old. They paid the ransom. You know, we worked with a handful of other companies where it was within a week. And I say, well, rather than pay a half a million dollars, we're going to spend the next six or seven days restoring from backup. And that's how most of those ransomware events are really determined. Last piece of advice is to build relationships with cybersecurity experts ahead of time. Whether it's legal, you will need legal resources if you are a, a victim of a ransomware. And it's important to have a legal resource that is familiar with cybercrime because there's a slew of different things. Banks in particular cannot pay a ransom to a ransomware group in an OFAC sanctioned country. You don't want to pay a half a million dollar ransom just to get fined by the FTC or the SEC, right? 
So keep that in mind. There are ways to work around it if it's absolutely necessary, but having a legal resource with a cybersecurity background is a really important thing. Cyber insurance is as important today as, as ever. Most of you guys are familiar with cyber insurance, you know, but that's evolving and changing too. It's becoming harder to get. The requirements that cyber insurance providers have of you are becoming more and more stringent. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of caveats that, that always fall into the world of insurance. And uh, DFIR resources, somebody to help you identify what happened and actively shut that down and recover. Those three areas are really important relationships to build for any business uh, ahead of being in the throes of ransomware and then not knowing what to do or not knowing who to call. Yeah, I think that's yeah, very valid information that you, you really should, at least as a business level, sit down with your you know different departments and say, okay, what would happen if we did, you know, have a ransomware attack. We need to have a plan in place of what we do in case we're ever attacked like that. So, and there's a lot of things that, you know, you don't think about ahead of time until you go through one of those little scenarios. So um, very critical. I'm pretty sure that I've pushed us way over our time today. So I apologize about that. But uh, um, John, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. Can't stress how important that cybersecurity really is in today's world. And I know I appreciate any time I have a chance to learn more about it and uh, how to keep our employees, customers, friends, and family protected. I look forward to the opportunity to sit down with you again and, and talk about how cybersecurity is evolving in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having us and allowing me to get on my soapbox about cybersecurity stuff. I, I always enjoy it. All right. Wonderful. Well, from all of us here at the SDBA, we want to wish you a happy and cyber safe October. Thanks for listening. Join us next time when SDBA President Carl Adam sits down with South Dakota Division of Banking Director Brett Offdahl to discuss policy and regulation impacting South Dakota's banking industry.